Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Open your Bibles to Genesis 18, if you would. You should have in your bulletin an outline there that you can follow. And uh, you have ample room there to take notes, so I encourage you to do so. I was originally intending to try and cover the remainder of 18 and all of 19 and decided not to. Yeah. <laughs> Let's read starting in verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not... I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous face uh, fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose ten 
are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage that we have read many times, and maybe we have read quickly through it to get on to what comes afterwards or maybe the repetitive nature of Abraham's words to you have caused us to trip through this passage without paying maybe the attention that we should. As we come to it today, I pray that we would treat this as it is, your word, living and active and sharp, your word that is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work, adequate. I pray, Father, that even during this time, you would help us not to be distracted by what has come before, what will come later. I pray that you would help us do a work in our hearts and our minds that we would focus on your word. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would minister to us from your Word. Father, as we ponder your justice, and as we ponder your mercy, and as we ponder even our own guilt, pray that you would help us to make sense of those things in light of this passage today. So we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the reason I had originally thought about trying to cover this all in one section is because it's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you could fit it all in one package, and it has an arc that goes beginning to end. And, and, uh, and surely this part here at the end of chapter 18 is, um, is something that we could deal with maybe in the in- introduction and then get to the real meat of the passage in chapter 19. And so uh, that's the way I was originally looking at it. And perhaps in your own Bible reading, you've come across passages in the Bible that you have kind of wondered why they're there. And it seems almost as if it's a placeholder between what has gone on and before and what's going to come afterwards. Maybe in your uh, Bible reading, you come across the genealogies and you kind of think, why are the genealogies there? And you skip through really fast and maybe you recognize a couple names, maybe you you know, read a line, skip a line. I don't know how you read the genealogies. I encourage you to read word for word, but I can tell you for myself that I used to be kind of befuddled by the genealogies because I, I, I couldn't see a purpose. I knew they were there. I knew the names were important, and I knew that it's, it's Scripture, and it's profitable for teaching. It's inspired by God, and, and, and all of that. I knew that, but I didn't understand how with the genealogies. But as I got to know the Bible better, I began to see new value in the genealogies themselves. I saw that actually it's a a very succinct way to recount redemptive redemptive history. That as you know the story and you learn the characters, you begin to play in your mind what's happening as each name goes by. And so there's great value in the genealogies themselves. Our passage today, I had intended originally to make the introduction for a sermon on what would really be Genesis chapter 19, but the more I got to reading 
this passage, the more I saw that there is meat here. That there is value in this passage that we dare not rush past. I could probably make a, a sermon somewhat under an hour with all of that together, but I would miss the meat. I would miss what we will learn today. And so that's why I thought it best to slow down and go through this passage that perhaps you've read and wondered, why does Abraham do that? And why is it included here? And why does he have to say it so many times? But this passage teaches us, and I hope that by the end of our time together today, you will see how this passage teaches us about God and His character, and about ourselves even. And so as we turn to work our way through this passage, we notice that there at the beginning, uh, in this first paragraph, we see God's plans for judgment. He starts in verse 16, kind of introduces the idea, then the men set out from there, and, and they look down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to show them on their way, as a good host would do. He's been hospitable, and he's going to show them on their way. Well, this brings up the idea of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so they are looking down there. And, and in verses 17 through 19, we see, as it were, God's thoughts on this topic, what God is thinking as He is looking down from where they are, down upon the city, thinking about the situation. We see into God's private thoughts, as it were. And the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He includes Abraham in, in this, or he's pondering whether he should do so. And we know, of course, the Lord doesn't ponder things to make decisions, but he's going to let Abraham in on this. And he tells us why in verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Abraham is not just my friend. Abraham is not just someone that I've appeared to. Abraham is not just another man. Abraham has promises. Abraham has a future where God says he's going to multiply him so that he's going to become nations, and, and nations will be blessed in him. There's, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot invested in Abraham. And so he says, well, shall I share this with Abraham? Shall I let Abraham in on what is about to happen? Well, there's something about Abraham, something about the promises that he's made to him that uh, make it so that he wants to include him. And so he says in the next verse, therefore, I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So God is looking down at Sodom and Gomorrah, and he glances over and looks at Abraham and, and says, well, I'm going to include Abraham. He's, he's one I've made promises to. He's going to become a great and mighty nation. Through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I've chosen him for this purpose, to command his own family to do righteousness and justice. And the result of that is going to be this very great blessing that God has promised to Abraham. So, in short, what God is saying here is, yes, I'm going to let Abraham in on this because his life and his family and his future and his offspring are to be about doing righteousness and justice. So what better way for Abraham to learn about righteousness and justice than for him to observe God rendering justice upon this city? That he would learn what is justice, 
that he would learn how to execute it, that he would learn the process God goes through, that he would learn what mercy is. Abraham needs to know these things, not just for his own personal future, but for the future of his entire descendants. And so we're let in on his private thoughts, and God says, yes, I'm going to include him for these purposes. It'll be good for Abraham to learn. It'll be good for Abraham to see. Abraham is a special character. Abraham is like the seed. He's like the beginning. He's like the, 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 the root. And so let's include him in this that he would see. We see in verse 20. The Lord turns and speaks now to Abraham. It's as if in the previous verses it was his own uh, inner monologue. But now he turns and he speaks and he says, uh, The Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, because it's great and their sin is very grave, I will go down there. I'm going to see whether it's really so. If it is, I'm going to render judgment. If it's not, then I'm going to do something different. That, that idea of outcry, he's heard the outcry. And we're not going to get to what the sins of, of Sodom and Gomorrah really were until next week. But the, the outcry, the idea of an outcry implies victims. Outcry comes from victims. That, that uh, the, the sins that are being committed in Sodom and Gomorrah are not victimless. That the crimes that go on there are not victimless. And just to preview a little bit what's going to come, what, what happens when the two angels come and visit? The locals try to accost them. The locals try to victimize them. So there are victims in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and so that outcry has come up to God Himself. No sin is victimless, but particularly these sins have terrible victims. Before we move on, I think it might be important for us to remember that no sin is victimless. Even, this, even the, 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 the sins in your own heart or your own mind. There will be consequences upon others. There will be a victim. And in one way of speaking, not to, not to call Jesus a victim, he's, he's not a victim, but that, that thought, that sin that's even just in your own heart, that's a sin he himself died for. They put him on that cross. That God would execute justice on him. And so uh, he hears the outcry and God is going to go down and he's going to investigate. Now, it's not as if God's been so far away, he's been, you know, he's been in a board meeting or or he hasn't really been paying attention, doesn't know what's happening. God knows all things. And so he's not going there so that he can learn. He's going to gather details and facts and draw conclusions. That's not what's going on. He and the angels know exactly what's going on. But he's He's establishing a paradigm, as it were, for Abraham. We don't have time to develop this too much, but he's going to go down and investigate. And when we execute justice, when we hear of a crime, when we uh, even just our, our children mistreating one another, we should go and investigate and find out what's really going on. You can't do justice if you don't investigate. I've, I've tried the old trick of you know, after the, after the kids have not been getting on, uh, along with each other for long enough, I, you know, just give judgment, you know, give discipline to both of them. You know, it's the same way. You guys are fighting again, so here you go. I don't really care who is at fault. Just keep it to yourself. That never works, right? <laughs> Punishing both. Now, eventually, you'll, you'll get someone who's going to be the hero of the group, and they'll say, I did it. 
so that they can take the punishment to spare the sibling, even though the sibling was the one who did it, right? So we don't, we don't render judgment that way. And so God is going to investigate, not because he needs to find out, but because he wants to establish a paradigm for Abraham to go and investigate and find out what is going on there. One author put it very well when he, he said this. He said, the Lord investigates the accusations thoroughly. He ensures two objective witnesses. Are there supposed to be two or three witnesses? Yes. For everything to be proven, there must be two or three witnesses. So he takes uh, the, the, these two witnesses. The Lord involves the faithful in his judgment. Abraham is involved in this. He displays active compassion for the suffering that's going on. Should we display compassion? We should. And he prioritizes divine mercy over indignant wrath. God is, God is putting on display here uh, for us and for particularly Abraham, who's going to be the, the, the father of a nation, of how they ought to pursue justice. And, and for those of you who have been involved in investigation in one way or another, you know that these are good steps, that these are important, that you really can't establish justice and execute justice without having these in place. And so, so God is uh, he's demonstrating this. And we could develop that more and see how that plays out uh, later on in Deuteronomy chapter 19. There are instructions given for when they get into the land, uh, how they are to set up their legal system and how investigations are to be done, etc. We don't have time for that today. But we see here in the beginning, God's plan is to, uh, is to confirm Sodom's guilt. And then He's going to bring judgment upon them. So that's, that's God's plan. But in, in Abraham's mind, this raises a question that God's justice is at stake, which brings us to our next paragraph. God's justice is going to be at stake. Verse 22, first of all, Abraham stands before the Lord, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now, there are some, there are some scholars who note that there's a sense in the language here in which the Lord is also standing before Abraham which is kind of unusual language. But the idea is that Abraham has the, has, the, has the boldness to stand before God when this judgment is about to happen, this investigation is about to go on, and, and Abraham, as it were, tugs on the Lord's sleeve. And he, and, and he wants to talk to him, but Ab, uh, even though Abraham, it takes great boldness for him to do that, the Lord is standing by. The Lord is inviting the conversation. He wants to bring Abraham into this conversation. And of course, Abraham is going to intercede, and we're going to see how he's going to do so. He sees the city, and, he, and he's going to plead for the city. He's going to plead for Lot, his nephew, who lives in the city, and Lot's family who is there. But I think it's important for us to, to note here that Abraham wanted to continue having heard that judgment is coming, having heard what the Lord is going to do, he wants to intercede. And so very boldly, he, he tugs on uh, the Lord's sleeve, as it were, so that he can talk to him. And he has a question. We start in verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said to him, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. 
so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Abraham's got some questions here, and he wants to, he wants to talk to the Lord about the Lord's justice. And of course, his immediate question is, is God going to kill the righteous along with the wicked? That's the question. God has indicated He's going to judge the entirety of the place. He's going to smash the whole city. He's going to judge the whole place. And so, is God going to kill the righteous along with the wicked? Surely there are righteous people there. Is God going to kill them as well? Of course, that's the immediate question. But the deeper question, Abraham recognizes God is the judge of all the earth. Is He going to act justly or not? in this situation. Surely God will be just and do what is just. And that question is going to be at the heart of Abraham's argument, Abraham's pleading before, before the Lord. That's, that's, the, that's the basis of why he's bringing his intercession is because of the justice of God. Surely God will do justly. Well, in order to understand even what he means there, we need to ask the question, what is justice? What is justice? Well, justice is related to the idea of righteousness. Righteousness is measuring up to a standard, measuring up to God's standard, which is the law. That's righteousness. God has a standard that's rooted in His character, and thus God Himself is righteous, not because He measures up to that law, but because there is law within Him. And we will be righteous or not based upon whether we measure up to that standard. And so that's, that's what righteousness means. To, to, to be righteous is to measure up to God's standard. But justice is related to that. Justice means that we reward those who meet that standard or we punish and correct those who do not meet the standard. That's justice. One author put it this way, a righteous person rightly orders community. And a just one restores broken community, especially by punishing the oppressor and delivering the oppressed. So that's the idea of justice. Those who are guilty should be punished. And it's interesting when you see here the Lord's response to that. Abraham makes his argument. He brings it before the Lord, and is this really going to be the case? Suppose there are 50 there who are righteous. Are you going to, are you going to destroy them along with the unrighteous? Because that would be unjust, Lord, for you to do that. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. The Lord's response the presence of even 50 righteous people in Sodom will be enough to cause the Lord to spare the entire city. Now, what's interesting is that now you've got a situation where it's not that the, the righteous are being treated like the unrighteous. It's not a situation where, where those who are, are, have right standing before God, are going to be crushed with those who are God's enemies. That's, what, that's the, the position that, that Abraham put out there, the argument that Abraham put out there. Instead, what the Lord says is, well, 
even if there are just 50 righteous there, I will treat the wicked like I'm going to treat the righteous. The righteous are deserving of deliverance from this situation. And so, even if there are only 50 of them in the city, I will deliver those wicked ones and give the wicked ones what the righteous deserve. Which raises the question here in, in, the, Lord's, uh, in the Lord's words and what's going to be dealt with in the next section here is about God's mercy. We already talked about God's justice, but now for the conclusion, we're going to uh, for the conclusion of our, our passage here, we're going to see God's mercy explored. So I'm going to read uh, the remainder of this verse and then, and then try and draw out the difference between God's justice and God's mercy and how that's going to relate in this situation. And so we go back to verse 27. We see uh, Abraham's words here and how he's going to continually go back to God with a new number, right? with a, with a counteroffer. As it were, Abraham answered and said, verse 27, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. The Lord has already said, if there are fifty there, great, I'll spare the whole place. Abraham starts to think, well, you know, maybe he had visited Sodom. He's wondering, maybe there aren't fifty. <laughs> How about 45? What if there are five lacking? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Right? New bar, new, new agreement. And again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. You see, he, he, he's, he's trying to talk the Lord down to establish a lower agreement, a lower number. Certainly, Sodom and Gomorrah had a reputation. And we've already met the king of Sodom before, back when, uh, back when we also met Melchizedek. And Abraham is, is familiar with the place. He's familiar with the people. He's familiar with what's going on there. And so, he says to him again, suppose 40 are found there. The Lord says, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he says, oh Lord, let not the Lord be angry with me, but I, uh, but, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. Now, at what point do you think the Lord is going to get tired of having to make new agreements? At, at what point do you think this is going to be enough is enough? You know, every, every, uh, every person who's ever uh, worked with, with teenagers or, or kids knows that they will push and push and push, right? The kids are in the room saying, no, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't dare do that. But they'll ask and they'll get a concession from give them, give them an inch and they'll take a mile. That means something. At what point is the Lord going to pull him up short and say, look, I already agreed to this number. We're not going any lower. Well, he answered in verse 30, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. What are we learning about God? Not, not just His patience. Usually, if this is a parent who's having to answer for the ninth time uh, with their child, it's, it's patience. They're showing great patience. It's not only patience that the Lord is showing. What else is He showing? Mercy. He is willing to be merciful on those who deserve 
judgment. And so he answers, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Isn't Abraham bold? That's not usually what we call our children when they come to us nine times in a row with the same kind of question. But it is bold, isn't it? And Abraham is bold. You know, he started off by tugging on the Lord's sleeve the one time. What about 50? What about 45? What about 40? 30? 20? 10? And the Lord is patient. The Lord is merciful. But Abraham has boldness. Boldness. And he keeps bringing his boldness before the Lord, and he keeps, uh, it seems like he realizes, I'm really being bold here. I've, I've already spoken, Lord. I'm sorry. I'm going to speak again. Please don't be angry. But right, he comes back to him again and again and again. But, but, but he has access to the Lord. I heard the story of a, of a man who's now a pastor. When he was growing up, his dad was in the ministry as well, and, and, uh, and this, the dad was, was, was counseling with a man, and, and, uh, and the boy kept running in. And the dad would turn and talk to the boy, and then the boy would leave, and he'd go back to the conversation with the, with the man he was counseling with. And that happened a number of times. And finally, the, the person being counseled got angry. He said, why don't you discipline your son? He keeps running and interrupting. And the dad said, because he's my son, and you're not. He has access to me. Now, I might have arranged that situation a little differently, and my children don't tend to run in and, and whatnot, but you, but you get the point is that the son has access to the dad. And Abraham has access to God. And God responds. That's what's so amazing. It's amazing that Abraham would be, uh, would be so bold, and, and the Lord's responses are amazing as well. Abraham keeps pestering him, and he keeps answering. So for Abraham's part, we see a great degree of boldness, and on the Lord's part, we see that he is willing to listen, and he is willing to respond. Now, as we read through that, you probably noticed that the Lord's responses were getting a little bit shorter as we went along. He's a little bit more expansive in the beginning, but by the end, his responses are pretty short. And some commentators have looked at that, and they've said, uh, you know, the Lord is, the Lord is um, becoming terse with Abraham. Like, enough is enough. Like, you've asked me, you know, enough times. How many times are you going to ask me? And I don't think that's true at all. I think the Lord is willing all the way through and inviting the intercession of Abraham for the lost. The Lord could have ended it at any time. It ends up being Abraham who ends it. Abraham gets to the point where he stops asking. I think God has invited the conversation to make the point to Abraham and to us. He wants us to intercede. He doesn't get to a point in our intercession when he says, okay, that's enough. You've reached your quota. 
He wants us to come to Him on behalf of sinners. And that's because there is a final word that we need to examine. And that word is mercy. We've looked at the justice of God. But look how, look how the Lord answers there at the second half of verse 32. He says, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. God is willing to show mercy. Remember, justice is when we get what is our own. If I have a job and I agree to work for $8 an hour and I work an hour, my employer owes me $8. That's my $8. That's my due. And justice says I should get that $8. Or to look at it from the the negative side, if the fine for littering is $100 and I get caught littering, justice says I will get a fine of $100. My due is to pay the fine. That's justice. But what is mercy? Mercy is when I don't get the fine that I deserve. Justice is something that I deserve. Mercy is something I can never deserve. I committed the crime. The fine is due me. That's what I ought to pay. Justice is necessary because God is righteous and God is just. And so justice is not a voluntary act. It is a necessary thing. But mercy is perfectly free and can be given or not according to God's choice. God is not obligated to show mercy. No one can be obligated to give mercy. If there's an obligation, it is not mercy. It's justice. Mercy is is free. Justice is what is owed me. Mercy can never be owed or demanded. It can only be freely given. So in verse 25, we saw that Abraham is concerned that if God simply wipes Sodom off the mat, that he would be treating the righteous like the wicked. The glory of this passage and what draws me up short as I'm reading through it is this irony that in Christ, the wicked get treated as the righteous should. Now, we're dealing with a passage, and we, like I said, we've not gotten to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, but, but it's exceedingly wicked. It's a, their, their behavior is so wicked that it draws God's attention in such a massive way. It's going to draw the cataclysmic judgment. There's something, something unique and particularly awful But I'm tripped up when I read Abraham's words asking about 50 righteous in the city. Ah, he was probably thinking 50 people who are not like all those other people, or 45 people, or 10 people who are not like those other people. He's probably thinking in those terms, but biblically speaking, if righteousness is adherence to God's law, then perfect righteousness is perfect adherence to God's law. And I've not done that, nor have you nor could you. So we are not righteous. We are the unrighteous. We are deserving of judgment in ourselves. But the the glorious thing about the gospel is that Jesus, who's who's a a descendant to come from Abraham much later, he's the the child of promise, he's the the seed of the woman, He's, he's, he's the inheritor, he's the one who's going to come, and he himself will be righteous. 
keeping the law perfectly in every detail and from the heart, obeying God's law. He's the only righteous one. And what does Jesus get? Judgment. He puts himself in the place of judgment, not for other righteous people. Unrighteous people like you and like me. He puts himself in that place so that he himself, the righteous one, stands in the place of the unrighteous and bears the penalty for that. And by faith in him, what do we get? We, the unrighteous, what do we get? If the righteous one received the penalty for unrighteousness, what do we, the actual unrighteous ones, get? We get to be treated as a righteous one, the only righteous one. That's the glory and the beauty of this passage. The Lord was, the Lord was willing, to, willing to spare all of those unrighteous for the sake of the righteous. Of course, that's not how it's going to shake out. We know the story is going to go differently in that way, but for you and for me, He spares us unrighteous ones for the sake of the righteous one. The mercy of God is amazing. The mercy of God is incomprehensible, and the mercy of God is not something we can demand. It's not something we deserve. If we deserved it, it would be justice. Paul says if we have earned it, it's our wage and not a gift. The mercy of God is an amazing thing. And, 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 and when, when Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That makes me pull up short. Because you, sinner, do not want the judge of the earth to do what is just with regard to you. When you're the offended party, you're desirous of justice. I'm with you there. You know, somebody, somebody, somebody offends you, somebody's done wrong to you. We want justice in that regard. But we don't want it across the board because I've done some offending also. Particularly against God, I've done some offending. Some offending is a euphemism, of course, for, for being a, a sinful wretch. That's me. I don't want justice from God. You don't want justice from God. In this passage here, the words Abraham uses, he, 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 he's saying that he wants justice, but in reality, we're talking about mercy, that God would be merciful to you and to me for the sake of Jesus, the righteous one. I want to close with a couple of points of application here. First of all, call out to God for His mercy in Christ. You don't want His justice. Look to Him for mercy. And that mercy is found in Christ, the one righteous one who gave Himself in the place of unrighteous like you and me. And when we put our faith in Christ, who, who lived the perfect life, who died that death on the cross, who, whom God raised from the dead, when we put our faith in Him, we become treated as the righteous sons of God on His behalf, for His sake. That's the first one. The second point of application. We, we kind of went by this quickly, and, and we're not really going to address it all that much, but Christian, don't underestimate your value as salt and light. 
The whole city could have been spared if there had only been 10 believers there. 10. <laughs> the impact that we have on the community around us, not just Fallon, but our, but our state and, and our nation, there's a Christian impact. There can be a Christian impact. There's an influence upon this world as, as Christians walk with God. As we proclaim the gospel, as we, as we point people to Christ, there is huge impact. This, chapter 19 could have been skipped over had there been 10 righteous in Sodom. So don't underestimate the value of being salt and light. Third point of application, and this is what we're going to finish with, intercede for the lost. Intercede for the lost. Plead with God that He would shower His saving mercy on them rather than giving them the justice that they deserve. Be bold and persistent in your prayer for those around you who don't know the Lord. Don't grow tired. Don't grow weary. You are not pestering God too much, I guarantee you. The Lord will accept more pestering and He will respond graciously. Make a list. Pray for those people. Keep it in the front of your Bible. Pray for the lost around you and don't give up. Don't give up. Even when it may seem to you like you have pestered the Lord far too long, you have not pestered the Lord nearly enough. Jesus told a parable in Luke 18 to the effect that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so let's encourage each other about that. I look around the room and, and, and I know there are some people on our list that we've been praying for a long time and probably you kind of thought, well, that must be a lost cause. I better free up some room on that list and put someone else's name there. Don't do that. Pray for the lost. Intercede for the lost. Have the boldness like Abraham had to tug on the Lord's sleeve. To step aside with him again. And ask the Lord to work savingly and mercifully in the lives of people who don't deserve it. People like us who don't deserve it. And so to that end, we have our prayer meeting tonight. And the focus is going to be particularly on interceding for the lost around us. And so bring your lists and bring, bring your, uh, your, your, your flagging heart so that you can be strengthened even as we pray together tonight. There's meat in this passage. There is exhortation and there is encouragement here. There's, there's, there's encouragement to us about continuing to pray because God is just, but He's not only just. He is merciful as well. And you and I know that in Christ. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we are tempted to pass by profound truths in your word. As we contemplate your justice, we're amazed that at your standard, which is revealed in your character, revealed in your word, revealed in our Savior Jesus, and how he behaved and what he did. We're amazed at your righteousness, and we, we recognize that justice would say, we should be punished when we have offended your, your righteousness. 
We are grateful for the mercy of God in Christ who gave himself the righteous one in the place of the unrighteous ones that we would be treated as if righteous because of Christ. Father, we confess that we all too often lose heart praying for the lost. Forgive us, we pray, and encourage us, and may this passage encourage us to continue boldly, repeatedly, persistently, over and over, to bring these requests to you, these dear ones that are so important to us. And we pray that you would hear from heaven and that you would answer and that you would redeem sinners like you redeemed this sinner once upon a time. We rejoice in your word. We rejoice in your mercy. And we rejoice in your son, Jesus, who is the display of that mercy on our behalf. And we pray in his name. Amen. There's going to be a family up front who would love to pray with you about any lost uh, or, or any other thing. They'd love to praise God with you. Um, so don't, don't pass that up. We'll see you tonight for prayer time there. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you're dismissed.